Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Trump. Although sometimes he's pretty plain, doesn't need much translation, as you'll see in uh, what we talk about today. Today, I'm happy to welcome back our good friend Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. We'll talk about our country and its desire to fight and succeed in regard to trade, domestic economy, and industry innovation. Joel talks about fear incapacitating us and talks about our president as, if nothing else, fearless. Also, I'm happy to welcome Ari Fleischer back to the show. Ari's a former White House press secretary for President George W. Bush. He's also a Fox News contributor, and he runs Ari Fleischer Communications. We'll get his thoughts about all the buzz circling the White House, the job Rudy Giuliani is doing, and how Donald Trump should handle some of the accusations which he is currently facing. Before we get to our guests, I have some thoughts on a number of things that are going on. I will be joined by a colleague and producer and co-podcast uh, partner, Claude Jennings. Claude, how are you? Bill, I'm good. How are you? Good. Plenty good. going on, Claude. Uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot happening right now. Man, were you up at three in the morning to see the return? No, I, w- I wasn't, although I do know a couple of folks, including um, our good friend Noreen, who set their alarm uh, on their phones to make sure they were Really? Up yes, yes. Really, really, yes, really. Well, deal. that's great. That's mm-hmm. great. No, it was quite something. And um, uh, the president going out to Andrews at three in the morning to welcome back these hostages whose release he negotiated. I mean, it's right. terrific. It's a great thing. Three of these guys. Uh, two of them, I believe, uh, were taken captive in the last uh, year or recently and one a little longer. But uh, no matter when uh, they were taken captive, they are released. And also, very happily, they are not in auto warm beer. Uh, condition. They look to be in good shape. So we welcome them all back. It's a great thing. It's a great thing for the president. It's a great thing for the United States of America. And it's mostly a great thing for them. Really quite a striking thing, Claude. It was a good thing. And, and, uh, from what I understand, um, you know, earlier than maybe expected, thought that that might happen closer to the summit or after the summit or during the summit, but, uh, well in advance of it. And so that, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. I got to give the president credit too on the summit at A for seven. Setting it up, uh, you know, for being in a position where it looks like we're going to have it. But B, also for being very cautious. If you've noticed, uh, Claude, he has said, you know, things may work, things may not. You know, it may go well and may, may have to walk out. But uh, I think he's going into this realistically, gimlet-eyed, clear-eyed, and that's the way he should because there have been conversations through intermediaries before uh, with uh, people in North Korea that uh, result in talk and nothing else. These are direct conversations, negotiations that we will be having, we will see, direct discussion, and man, that'll be really, really interesting. But um, good for the president, good for the hostages, good for the USA. Also this week, uh, the president uh, killed the Iran deal, which deserved killing. I mean, it it was a terrible deal. Uh, Yeah, something, I mean, there are all sorts of dimensions to this that made it wrong. But the thing that sticks in my mind, do you remember this, Claude, these large pallets going onto these ships loaded with cash? Yes, yes. That were going, mm-hmm. I mean, $150 billion, bunch of it in cash going to the Rainies. What's the cash? All up thing? front, yep. How about a wire, you know? I mean, why did it have to be in cash? Plus, paying off these bloody killers, these guys responsible for the deaths of so many Americans, civilians and soldiers, really horrible. Uh, and as the president said, why do we give money and make deals with people who are still saying death to America and death to Americans? Glad he pulled out of that deal. I know he's getting a lot of criticism from the left. Uh, the Europeans aren't happy. He did the right thing. It's a terrible deal. Uh, and um, 
you know, the Iranians are scrambling now. They are scrambling now. And I'm, I'm just glad to see him do that strong and decisive. Any comment? Just two thoughts on it. Um, and I'd like your opinion on the second one. Uh, the first one is, you know, if uh, the Europeans and the Iranians, you know, definitely want a deal, then why not work to get a better one as opposed to just throwing up your hands and being so upset that he yeah. pulled out of this one? Uh, you know, then why not come to the table and say, all right, fine, let's work. Let's work out a better deal. It's possible because they don't necessarily want a deal in the first place. And who's to say and you have this talk about? You know, the deal was working. They weren't enriching uranium. And they were. How do you know? I mean, from yeah, what I understand, yeah, yeah, right, right, inspectors right, right. Ha- have to give them a month notice. How do you know that they're not doing All of a sudden, you have this. You have Iran, who for years and years and years and decades, you said you can't trust. All of a sudden, President Obama makes this deal. And so now all of a sudden, we think we can trust them. I don't I don't get how that works. Um, but one thing I wanted your opinion on is uh, trust isn't made because you make a deal. Trust should be established before you make a deal. Correct. You know? Correct. Yeah. Um, so how do you think this moves, th- this affects things moving forward, even with North Korea, with South Korea, and even with our European allies thinking, okay, well, if we make a deal with this president, the next one may come in and, you know, it's not valid. How does that, how, do, how, cause you, that's one of the main arguments that this affects trust with our allies and even, um, countries who aren't, uh, you know, our allies in making future deals if they can't trust that those deals would hold. Well, it's a great question, but for one, we don't know the basis on which a negotiation or agreement would be made with North Korea. And if it one that would involve the Congress and a vote of the Congress, um, then it, it binds the United States uh, in a, in a, in a uh uh, a more lasting and firm way than simply an agreement by the president. The, the, I'm glad you brought that up because it reminds me of the, uh, the one of the points I wanted to make about this. Uh, Obama and Kerry are saying, you know, America broke its word here. You know, uh, America didn't break its word. Um, you know, Amer- it wasn't America's promise. It was Obama's promise. He couldn't get this through the Congress. Obama could not get this through the Congress. Senators, Democrat senators like Robert Menendez and even Chuck Schumer were opposed to this deal. You wouldn't know it now to listen to them, but they were opposed to this deal. So it was a uh, you know a, 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 a signing by the pen and a, and, a, and a handshake or a virtual handshake by Obama. So um, that's why it can be so easily undone. But if you get in a, a different kind of agreement with Iran or a different kind of agreement with North Korea uh, that goes through the legislative process, then it's more permanent. Um, and uh, can't be undone simply by uh, presidential waving of the arm or, or signature. Uh, so we don't know. We don't know. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We don't know what the basis of a deal with North Korea might look like or what a future deal, should it come to pass, with Iran would look like. But it can be on a firmer basis than uh, than the Obama one. Did, did I answer your question? Yes. Yes, you did. Yeah. Okay. 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 Let's talk about Gina Haspel. Did you see any of the hearing with Gina Haspel on, I, I did on not. Wednesday? I did not. I watched a couple of hours. Uh, she deserves the job. She should get the job. Uh, if John Brennan, who was her superior, got the job, you know, involved in the same thing, she was. She should get the job. Um, I didn't feel she had to take the pledge of well, I would never do this again. You know, the waterboarding. I would never do it again. Well, it's against the law now because legislation's been passed, so you shouldn't do it's against the law. I don't think that was a particularly wise law to pass. But um, you know, if the president gave you an order, would you do it? No, no, no. Um, I, I, maybe she had to say that, Claude, in order to get confirmed. And if she did. Yeah, so be it. But I would have preferred, just me, and the audience may disagree with me, I would have preferred her to say, look, 
if we find ourselves in those circumstances again, like we did after 9-11, we know what was going on, who'd be hit next, when we'd be hit next, then, you know, we may take extraordinary measures. I mean, I think that's just common sense, you know, to, to apparently we prevented an attack on Los Angeles by this very, you know, rigorous, enhanced interrogation, waterboarding of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Now, she said in the hearing, we don't know for sure what the effects of these interrogations were. We can't say for sure. But an awful lot of people close to it said we got good information this way. And uh, I, I believe we did. But I don't think you eliminate any possibility. Keep everything on the table. Uh, if you're dealing with terrorists and a terrorist situation uh, and waterboarding is, you know, is the thing that's going to get you the answer. And it's not the worst thing in the world. And I don't think it's torture. It's damn unpleasant. But I don't think it's torture. You know, I think she should say if we find ourselves in the same predicament, same situation, fine. But the hypocrisy here of the Senate, uh, people who were there then in 2001, who heard these briefings from the CIA people and other people where they reported what they were doing and either people were silent or approved. Now, all of a sudden, you know, 17 years later, all this second guessing. Uh, I think she'll be confirmed. A lot of bad faith on the part of Democrats. But let me let me say one thing politically. A very bad posture for the Democrats. Uh, most of the country is with Gina Haspel. Most of the country is with, you know, what we did then. Uh, maybe young people who weren't around or weren't thinking or weren't, you know, were just chip babies and, you know, have no concept of this. But I think it's a losing issue for the Democrats to pre-limit, delimit uh, how far a CIA or others can go in terms of protecting the United States. Am I clear enough on this? Yes, yes, you are. Um, embassy to Jerusalem, moving faster. Uh, this is, again, another controversial thing, but a very clear and decisive thing the president has done. We can make a list of these things. Uh, maybe I will here at the end. But um, very impressive. Uh, okay, here we are in the economy. It's moving along. The unemployment rate dropped below 4%. Lowest unemployment rate we have seen for African Americans in a what since the records have been kept. Uh, same for Hispanic Americans. I think I'm quoting that correctly. My son pointed out to me a statistic for every unemployed American right now there is a job. Wow. And this is the first time this has occurred since records have been uh, been kept. And that's uh, that's quite extraordinary. So let's take a look at the, uh, at the, at the Trump record. We have a conversation with Ari about the president's troubles. I'm not trying to deny they exist. They do. We will be talking about it candidly with Ari Fleischer coming up. But let's look at the accomplishments. You got the meeting with uh, North Korea coming up. You got these hostages freed. You got him trashing and getting rid of the Iran deal, which makes sense. You have um, judges. I didn't mention judges. The uh, Supreme Court appointment, of course, is huge. And then on the federal courts, he's made a lot of appointments on the big circuit courts. Courts of Appeals, big appointments and lots of them, and he's got lots more to go, and McConnell has said that he will get these people cleared. Uh, the economy is moving. Uh, the unemployment rate is way down. There is a job for every unemployed person uh, in America. Uh, optimism is uh, is greater. People are thinking uh, more on the right track. And despite, I believe my numbers are right, 91% uh, negative coverage from the mainstream media, the president's approval ratings are going up. I don't know what I forgot, but um, it's pretty good, uh, pretty good record for a year and a quarter. Yeah, you know, and uh, I was actually listen, uh, listening to uh, I can't remember if it was radio or podcast or something, but they, they were saying, you know, whether or not you listen to other podcasts. Uh yes. So, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> let's not name well, them. Well, they're not competition. I mean, I let's not to name them. Po- no, of let's course not. not. Well, I mean, you know, I work in media, so there's a few podcasts. I guess you're going to pick it up here. Yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah. a few that I that I I was working this. As I sometimes as well. watch television when I'm not on. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, um, Especially and, college football. Either way, surely well, not. Yeah. Well, we're just and we're just a few months away. We've got to get there. Gosh, please get there. Would you? Can we make talk and make time go faster? Exactly. So, yeah, agree with policy or not. You know, the president is doing just about every single thing he said he would do on the campaign yeah, no, trail okay. in less than two years. I mean, you know, you, isn't it refreshing? You hear, guys, here's what I'm going to do when I get in office. And he gets in office, and this is what he's doing. Uh, no one should be shocked by yeah, it, yeah, even no, with great. the troubles. Like you said, I mean, the guy that you that we saw we were getting in <laughs> in uh, 2016 election, we got him. That's who he is. That's right. what he said. So. Right, right. Right, right, right. A couple other thoughts, and and this just kind of bothers me. It even bothers me to say it, but I feel like I got to say it. John McCain, and we wish him well, uh, but he is uh, probably you know nearing the end of his time. Mm-hmm. An American hero, a true American hero. I have uh, liked and John liked and admired John McCain for a long time. I've also had severe disagreements with him on things. I thought it was really a bad move that put the thumbs down on that uh, you know killing of Obamacare vote or the passage of a, an alternative, uh, and, uh, you know, it does things to make to make you angry. But I hate to see the end marked in bitterness. He said, I don't want the president coming to my funeral. I just, you know, that's gratuitous. It's mm-hmm. unnecessary. Somebody should talk to him. He also said, I wish I hadn't picked Sarah Palin for my running mate. I wish he hadn't picked Sarah Palin for his running mate. thought so at the time. Uh, I was happy to defend her to all her horrible critics, but... Uh, I was never a huge Sarah Palin fan, just for a number of reasons. But um, he should not—he should not go out like that. Um, I know you're not supposed to go gentle into that good night, but you don't have to go so harshly. Um, president, I, you know, he doesn't want the president at his funeral. That's just kind of—it's kind of small for a guy who's done so many large-minded things. Uh, I hate to see the the small-mindedness here. Uh, and people say, well, you shouldn't be critical of someone nearing the end. Well, you know, I, I, you can be critical of me toward the end. He's alive. He's, he's a fully grown man. He can take, he can take criticism. Um, my message, should he hear this is, come on, you know, don't, don't, don't settle all these scores, uh, in, uh, in bitterness at, at the end. That's, that's just my thought. I don't know what you think, Claude. No, and, and like you said, I mean, you know, he, he, I think the point of sometimes of criticism is to is to help and to correct, right? And so, you know, you can say that one day and say, you know what, what I said a few days ago, I want to backtrack on that. I'm not going to end things in, like you said, bitterly. I will be a bigger person and go out, you know, that way. That's a that's a great thought, great thought, yeah. Bill. Yeah, thanks. Finally, uh, I'm asking the audience, um, tell us a commencement story. If you heard a great commencement address, if you went to a graduation. Uh, tell us if you heard about some uh, speaker at a graduation that's interesting for whatever reason. Um, remember, we p- played on the radio that commencement speech by the President of the University of Texas, who's the former head of the Navy SEALs. Right. That wonderful 10 things that, you know, SEALs lessons that you take away in life. Number one, what's number one, Claude? Make your bed. In Make the your bed. Yep. Yeah. I remember that. And the guy called in and said, I made my bed, but, you know, my wife was still in it. She got mad. Anyway, <laughs> remember that. That's uh, McRaven. Uh, I'm McRaven. But um, if you hear of an interesting or good commencement address or know of one, send it to us. We'll play it. Uh, if you know of a really bad one, that's fine. Uh, the pattern that a lot of the, uh, quote, quote, elite institutions seems to be emerging, 
Uh, let's see if you discern a pattern here, Claude, all right? Okay. This is like a little IQ test. I give you three things and ask you what they have in common. Let's see if you can figure out what they do. All right? Okay. Ready? Yeah, let's do it. Yale University commencement, Hillary Clinton. Okay. Hillary Clinton. Um, Massachusetts Institute of Technology commencement, Cheryl Sandberg. Okay. Uh, University of Pennsylvania commencement, Andrea Mitchell, NBC News. Right. You're beginning to see a pattern? Well, they're all women, one. Uh huh, good. Very okay. good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very perceptive. That's the kind of, yeah, bottom line. Okay. Uh, and uh, they all seem to have a certain worldview that one would uh, 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 would say is liberal. Sarah Palin's not on the list, for example. Right. Or anywhere near the list, is my guess. <laughs> Nor is, you know, a brilliant person like, you know, Heather McDonald or, you know, right. any of a number of uh, other other people. Uh, I wonder what Michelle's commencement schedule is, speaking. Do you I'm suppose sure she's busy. got a lot? Yeah, sure. Michelle Obama? I wonder. Okay. Well, that's it. Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear commencement stories, commencement speeches that are worth hearing. We'd love to hear terrible commencement speeches, at least in part. So please send them to us. And now let's get uh, let's get to Joel Farkas and to Ari Fleischer and the rest of the show. I'm done with my rant. You want to rant a bit, Claude? No, I'm done. I'm, I'm all ranted out uh, listening to you rant. De-ranted. Right. We are deranted, <laughs> like taking the termites out or something. Yeah, deranted and derailed, actually. Derailed. <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, it's time to welcome back to the show Joel Farkas. Joel is director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington, and uh, he sent me a very interesting um, email uh, with some great ideas. Uh <laughs> Uh, Joel, I'll just quote Joel and let him take off. My current aggravation, Bill, fear and failure. Trump has no fear. And for that, he's criticized. Say more. <laughs> well, yeah. um, he's just, uh, he is fearless. There is no doubt about that. Each and every topic that he uh, wants to negotiate, wants to change, wants to improve, the uh, incessant criticism is what will happen if this negotiation fails. And we end up listening to and reading pages and paragraphs and hours of, of commentary as to the just the spiraling failure of what's going to happen if it doesn't work. Uh, it's just a strange way to view uh, how to improve the country. None of these people who commentate like that could ever possibly start a business, innovate, create, manufacture anything. It's a really, really bizarre way to view things. I Listen, I clearly understand we need to look at worst-case scenarios, but we shouldn't live our daily lives based on the worst case. You quote James Acton of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. The United States diplomatic goal, the denuclearization of North Korea in the near future, is far beyond what is realistically achievable. In a worst-case scenario, a failed negotiation could even act as a prelude to war, as tensions would invariably escalate in the aftermath. Close quote. You write, uh, Joel, this could never work for for or be a part of a startup of an innovative company. A guy like that, so risk averse, so fear averse, but not for Donald Trump, right? And exactly, not for him, and not for any other person we admire in the country who innovates. Who, who, who thinks, who dreams, who tries to create. Whether you are creating a technology company, whether you're creating any other company, whether you're an artist creating music or film, nobody thinks that way. 
They don't walk into a project and start with what happens if these negotiations fail, and therefore, if they fail and it and this and war occurs, I should never talk. I should never start. I should never attempt to negotiate. Like I said earlier, you certainly have to look at worst case scenarios. But for God's sakes, you don't you, you don't stop and cease doing things because of fear. Right. That, that doesn't sound like America to me. Uh, it sounds like citizens into, under totalitarian rule, but it doesn't sound like America and liberty. And fear is also brought in when Trump acts not to do something in an aggressive or um, New Deal situation. But when he withdraws, the fear that was cited from uh, his withdrawing the U.S. from Paris, Paris Accords, the environmental accords, environmental stuff, his Iran, his his wanting to change the terms and not live with the deal uh, of uh, of uh, the, the pres- that President Obama made again. Fear. Oh well, well, look what's going to happen. Um, it's interesting as a psychological point. Is it about the left? Is it is it a psychological point about the left? Do not uh, always think of the worst scenario or just th- or think of who this might offend that that's that's the lens through which we should view that's what you're saying right is the lens is narrowed to oh my gosh what could happen uh, in a negative way rather than what might happen in a positive way it, it is that but uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, uh, the Paris climate accords and the in the Iran agreement uh, last year when President Trump withdrew the United States from the Paris climate accords and was talking about the terrible Iran agreement. But within weeks of President Trump withdrawing from the climate accords, France and their major oil and gas company, Total, entered into a very large agreement to produce Iran's energy to drill their oil and gas. They also entered into a very large agreement with Qatar, the largest gas fields, known gas fields in the world. So while it is uh, uh, this lens of fear and don't offend someone, you don't hear very often in the United States the significant economic connection France has with Iran. Right. So uh, I, I don't think when the when the when President Macron came to uh, to see uh, President Trump last week, I don't think he said, "Please do this because it's really going to hurt us economically." And he didn't. If he said it, he did certainly didn't tell the tell the world that. But I can assure you that is a very significant reason why they're. Uh, why they're foisting their morality upon the United States. Yeah, it was kind of a bad, bad ending, too, to that Macron visit, didn't you think, with his speech to Congress where Macron said, you know, some pretty critical things. I know you're well, a fan, uh, fan of Macron for imitating Trump on some things, but, you know, I was, even before that speech to Congress, I said, all right, enough of the French, enough of this visit, I've had enough. Yeah. Two cheers for the French, one and a half cheers, maybe. Yeah, it's a, it, it, the speech was hypocritical. It went yeah. right back into the thing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we could have had, uh, he could have ended it with the last two sentences I just mentioned. And by the way, please protect Total's newly signed agreement for producing energy, regardless of the Paris Climate Accords, so that we can make some money and, uh, don't, and, and not, uh, you know, and, and you won't hurt our relationship. And yeah. throw in yeah. Qatar, too. Yeah, but he didn't do that. He just criticized, and it's just hypocritical. And it, quite frankly, it was a little embarrassing. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, and then uh, actually, uh, Lady Macron—I can't think of her first name—had uh, some somewhat critical comments too. So, 
you know, the heck with them. I mean, one cheer, one and a half cheers. Boy, the more I talk, the fewer cheers I'm giving them. But anyway, that's all right. Um, well, they have another uh, another thing. They have another anniversary. We've heard, we've heard about the anniversary of uh, Karl Marx's birthday. This year's the 50th anniversary of uh, the, the student riots in, in, in France to bring in progressive socialism. Yeah, and here we are, fifty years later. Uh, the uh, the president is trying to dismantle that because the economy is 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 in shambles. Right. So there's a lot of uh, yeah. you know when, when, when there's a lot of things that they they should spend some time on working uh, with their own uh, issues and and not stand in front of Congress and criticize. Uh, and no kidding, the bastion of liberty. Let's go back to fear uh, because this fear is not only in uh, foreign policy and uh, comes out when people talk about Trump. They're, they're so everyone's just, of course, everybody fears Trump. There's this kind of general thing out there on the left and in the media that, you know, what will he do to the country? By the way, I don't know if you saw it. I just saw it this morning. But uh, Charles Krauthammer has uh, reappeared and he wrote a piece. Very Wonderful. Positive, very positive piece about Trump saying he's a pragmatist. This will be this will be very interesting uh, to a lot of uh, to a lot of people. And, I hope uh, he can uh, find someone to go to lunch with him after writing Oh, that. you remember. Yeah, you remember my defense of Trump <laughs> and his, uh, well, let's just say not particularly in agreement with me at the time. Glad to see it. Smart. He's a smart guy. Can I say yes, Trump Kramer yes, caught yes. up with me? No, I don't want to say that. Uh, but, but, um, you know, but, but, but this general worry about, about Trump, but this fear business, as, as you say, is worrisome in addition because it's gone to other spheres. I want to get to the universities in a minute, but business, I mean, business is risk-taking. You wrote this to me, uh, Joel, business used to be somewhat exempt from this mindset of fear, except now business has the same fears, afraid to disrupt China trade other foreign trade agreements, tariffs, and property rights protection. Uh, so the U.S. ends up not wanting to fight for results in trade, domestic economy, or industry innovation. Well, this was the whole point, or part of the point, right, of these tax cuts was to get the economy going and to get people to engage and to start up. And when you start up, that's risk. And if you say, well, you know, the fear of failing might be so so great, never a reason to start up. Correct. It, and, and it manifests itself in some really really straightforward, interesting, simple ways. Big business and, and big government and even big cities with their fear, uh, they, their reaction is to confront uh, the American middle class, to, they, to disdain uh, the middle America. They ignore or deny these workers' hardship, and they label middle America as deplorable. These are the, these are the results yeah. of their fear. And let's start with, um, uh, with business and, and the denial of that workers' hardship. Let's talk about unemployment for a moment. What is unemployment? Unemployment is someone who is in the labor force who is not working. We've been hearing this for several years, that America is at, quote, full employment, unquote. And if we employ more people, then inflation will occur. That's bad. So we, this is this, is, this, this drumbeat that employing more people will cause inflation, and that is bad. Furthermore, wages. We don't, you know, Americans would like wages to increase, but the elites that have this disdain for middle America, describe it as wage inflation, meaning if wages go up, there will be inflation. So here's this narrative. Employing more people is bad because we're at full employment, and wages going up is bad because it will create inflation. All of that is what? Bad for the large businesses, and therefore we should 
control it. Yeah. Well, if you are a middle American who doesn't have a job, that's the, that's the most absurd thing you could possibly hear. And the simple message that President Trump conveyed when he was elected and continues to convey is, I would like for you to have a job. I'm not, he didn't say, I, I, I demand and mandate you have a job. I would like for you to have a job. And the reaction to people who are who, who don't like him is, hold on a second. That's not so good if too many yeah. people are employed. It's not so good if wages go up. And by the way, when we have foreign trade, there's something called trade disruption assistance, which is the, the, the progressive left's answer to how do you how do you help those who've lost their jobs because of global globalization and foreign trade? Yeah. So there's a series of strange you know, I'm going to help you. I'm going to assist you. I'm going to do these things for you. But I'm doing it because I don't want too many people working, and I don't want wages going going up. And by the way, I kind of ha- I kind of do admit that when we have foreign trade, there are people who get hurt. Sure, of course. Well, what do we say? Can't make an omelet breaking eggs. I mean, I, you know, of course there are risks. There are risks to life. I remember. Um, Plato or Aristotle, I guess I don't remember so well. But uh, I think it's Plato, you know, the purpose of uh, in one of the dialogues. What is the purpose of a ship's captain? Well, to keep the ship safe. He said, no, no, yes. the purpose of the ship's captain is to set sail and get the job done. If the purpose of the ship's captain was to keep the ship safe, you could fill in the answer, Joel. You would never lose the, harbor. Stay in port. You'd never leave harbor, right? Never. No Never. risk. That's a hurricane. Uh, anyway, but, uh, but and, that's it. So, so, and, and that's really, I think, an apt point because people never leave harbor out of risk of whatever the fear, the fear of a startup, the fear of starting a family, the fear of offending someone. And you get into this. I mean, obviously, it, I'll, I'll let you make the point, but our universities today. I'd like to touch on what you just said. The, yeah, sure. Starting yeah. a family. Please. Starting a family. Um, Risky business. Uh, we've, had, we've had many conversations about where Americans can afford to live and how they can have a family. Yep. And one place they cannot live, middle Americans, with a normal salary, is in a very large city, uh, and typically in a very large city on a coast. Yeah. So the disdain I was referring to, and the, the label we have this labeling of middle Americans as deplorable and miserable. They also live in other places that people who label them live. And it was interesting you mentioned Plato. Well, uh, Tocqueville in the 1800s wrote about America, uh, democracy in America, and he had an interest, many interesting comments. But uh, the one that uh, that I'm, I'm most interested in is. Uh, his reference to America, uh, America's dynamism. He was admiring America that its economy and its and its uh, its thoughts are not concentrated in a major city like Paris right. or London. Rather, it's dispersed all throughout the country, and there's no central control of expression, no That's central right. control of opinion. That's right. And that That's was right. that was the the admiration of other countries around the world as to what America was doing. Yeah. I guess one could say, if we want to make America great again, that might be one thing we're referring to. Yeah, which is, no, that's a great which point. Is, so when we have these these uh, these large cities which have homelessness and poverty and extreme wealth, we've talked before. We do have an existing solution in America that's to go 
to all these other areas within our country, which, by the way, people are doing. They're absolutely moving there, regardless of what the elite policymakers are saying. However, when they move there, they are being criticized. They are being labeled anyways. That's thankfully the, the normal American citizen doesn't read these uh, these kinds of reports and these kinds of publications every single day. They just have an instinct to do what what they feel is right. Yeah, uh, exactly, and willing to take that risk. I remember those passages in Tocqueville where he talks about uh, the spider, the, the bloated center uh, of Paris, and um, that this is uh, not true of America. I remember Jefferson said, you know, he was a celebrant of the rural life and the bucolic life, and um, said, uh, you know, let's if we all move to the cities, we'll end up eating our children. Very dramatic, very <laughs> Jeffersonian, but uh, but but no, you know, it doesn't all. Rodney Dangerfield said that in Caddyshack, too, or something. Okay, all right. Uh, Aristotle, Plato, Rodney Dangerfield, Tocqueville. We're just we're just we're just running through the changes. But it's a funny situation in a lot of states, uh, isn't there? Where you've got this kind of very large, oftentimes bloated and liberal place, Seattle, in the state of Washington. The rest of Washington is pretty conservative, pretty Trump yes. country. Oregon. Portland, huh? San Francisco and Los Angeles in, in California. Um, New York City, am I right? I mean, these are like little Paris's. You are, you're exactly right. And everyone is concentrated there. They talk, they talk about the same topics. They believe the same things. And the people that live in those concentrated urban areas still cannot possibly figure out how someone else in, in the rest of America can think differently. There's this, uh, this MIT economist, Darren, uh, Asimiglu, I think I'm pronouncing it. He's describing the, you know, people, uh, why they, you know, why they are are thinking, why they love what Donald Trump is doing, why they voted for him. He said, um, if I were to make a guess, that uh, it's not just their economic hardship; it's it has it has to tap into other grievances, and those other grievances are pent up hostility towards blacks and immigrants, and, and maybe uh, perhaps their own slow upward mobility. I don't know how he could possibly extend someone uh, the, the notion yeah. that someone doesn't have a job as it ex- and is experiencing a hardship to become all these other things. It, it, yeah. But that is a very common cocktail or dinner conversation in the places you just mentioned. If fear had uh, occupied the minds of our pioneers, I use the word exactly, we wouldn't have never gone west, young man, right? We wouldn't have gone satellite. Never. But great book I uh, I read. I, I'm interested in these survival narratives, you know, people in desperate circumstances, North Pole, South Pole, jungles and stuff. But one of the books, uh-huh. Survival Narrative of America, is 1846, Year of Decision. It's about the Donner Party, and you know who they are yes. going west. Yes. Ends up very, very badly. But I remember at the beginning of the book, it says just, you know, just another wagon train moving west. You know, the hopes and fears of these folks from Missouri that they would find and live a better life. And that has an awful lot to do with America and not being fearful, but being partly fearful, little fearful, rationally fearful about the dangers, but understanding that with uh, with risk comes opportunity. Exactly. And one more uh, to extend on, on, on President Trump's lack of fear Good. and interest in pursuing something. We, we obviously have heard about uh, tariffs. You would think that Donald Trump is going to create the next Great Depression because he has discussed 
and threaten to impose tariffs. Now, what's lost in that criticism is the United States has trade agreements which are being repeatedly violated by our partners. So the issue is, are you just going to allow a trade agreement to be violated without discussion? So the mere discussion is going to create something that, just like the, the quote you, you, we started with, the mere discussion of tariffs, the mere discussion of trade agreements yeah. could spiral into something that is devastating. Yeah. Well, I want to I remind all of my uh, economist friends in this country that the Great Depression had many different things that caused it. The, the people that you studied said this. What were some of those other things? High unemployment, raising taxes, increasing regulations, low demand, high capacity. I don't know that I've heard anyone report that those were, and by the way, John Maynard King said, Keynes said, uh, you know, raising taxes and, and, and regulations and unemployment were the, were the primary causes. I understand that tariffs also are a contributor, but it is not the only thing. Yeah. It is not the sole thing. Yeah. And it's out of context with President Trump saying, I am going to use tools to stop violations by China yeah. to, to improve our agreements with Canada and Mexico. Yeah, yeah. And that is another manifestation of criticism of his fearlessness. And this goes, allow me, uh, philosopher, to move from economics to life and to, and to, and to campus, because you mentioned this in your memo to me, too. Trickle down may or may not work in economics, but in psychology, it seems to. The fear of another idea, the fear of an idea that you do not agree with, the fear of an idea that is antithetical to what you believe, driving so much of this ridiculous political correctness on campus. Yeah, uh, it's uh, if <laughs> universities are supposed to be the bastion of exploring new ideas. That's, that's what I thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that, and not just because we serve here at standard First Amendment and so on and so on. First Amendment has to do with government action. That's not the real argument on the campuses. The real argument on the campuses is what you just said. It's a place you go to, 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 you know, to be challenged in your views and your ideas uh, and to hear both sides of an argument and to think about things you've never thought about before uh, and to wrestle with the great debates um, yes. It's intellectual excitement, people, and some of that may tick you off. To meet people uh, whom you've never you've never had an opportunity to meet. Uh, it, it is right. all of those. You, you are you're our foremost expert on what a university should be, and I can't. I, I've just gone through this experience now for my fifth time looking at universities for my kids. It's hard to find one that has those conditions, has those opportunities, has those elements. The marketplace of ideas, as Holmes called it, the marketplace of ideas. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, you know, we're we're fearful of China uh, with all these things. Well, well, China has this new concept that they're not a new concept, but a concept that they've tested. And they're implementing implementing right now, and it's called a social credit system, where they they review what everybody in, in China is doing, where they shop, what they say, how they behave, how they act. And, and once you are labeled 
once untrustworthy in China, always restricted. Uh, and almost, you know, we have this situation in universities today and on campus, and maybe even America. People think that if you don't think and act and behave this way, then you are going to be denigrated or restricted or you know not allowed to. I mean, in China, it's, you don't even you can't even go on a on a dating website and get the best opportunities. You're kind of denigrated on those. It's it's so yeah. restrictive. But that's what a university is is kind of doing. They're kind of imposing a social credit system on people who don't think like uh, the mob thinks. Right, right. When I was at Boston University, um, there was a very left-wing professor. He's very famous. His name is Howard Zinn, and he wrote The People's History of the American Republic, socialist professor. His course was at 11 a.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday. My course was at 10. And I told students in my course, take Zinn's course at 11, take my course at 10. And they started to put my ideas forward to Zinn, and they started to put Zinn's ideas forward to me. And that's a, that's a university, right? That's that's exactly. the back and forth. That's the engagement. And of course, I said, "Why don't we do this together sometime?" You know, you and I'll have a debate. You didn't want to do that, but uh, uh, but anyway, the students should hear that, and their heads should spin a little bit, and they should be, you know, not not clear uh, for a while. Oh, look, I quoted Jefferson earlier. You know, if we move to cities, we'll 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 end up eating our children. But Marx, on the other hand, says the one great thing about the bourgeoisie is it pointed out to us the idiocy of rural life. Okay, so yeah, 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 so, yeah, so which yeah. which which is it? Which, by the way, yeah. Paul Krugman, Paul Krugman recently said almost the identical thing. Okay, good. Really, I'll find us that really? way for the next time. Find us that. <laughs> it was uh, it was something to the effect of I can't I can't I'm, I'm thinking about why there's even any relevance. Yeah. For uh, for a, a rural or small city in yeah. the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, um, if if fear had been the dominant thing in the, the minds of pioneers or pilgrims or patriots, I guess they're all peas, uh, the American people, we would not have uh, we would not have America. And the fear that you're worried about creeping into our discussions of politics and in business and the universities uh, has to be resisted. Just has to be resisted. Look, life life is anxiety. Life is uh, nervous making. You know, uh, in the Catholic Church where I grew up, um, you know, they said uh, this is the veil of tears. Oh, it's not so bad all the time, but it's tough. And you take some risks and you live with some fear, but you don't let fear cripple you. No, in uh, Middle America, the ones the the, 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 the the class of people in America, both in their in their economic circumstance and their location where they live, Middle America, Middle Americans, they admire, they demand, they aspire to have the things we're talking about: jobs, a family, the ability to to hand things down to their children, whether it's advice, whether it's experience. These are these are remarkable opportunities that Americans have always had. You notice I didn't mention one thing about gender or race or yeah, anything like that. How can you and have not, a discussion without doing that? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm never going to have a discussion with anyone who brings those topics up again. I just can't good, do it. Good, but it's good. it's a it's a, it's an aspiration that people enjoy and to be given the opportunity you are not again economists will call people who who are not working but they're you know they say that they're they're not working because they're discouraged and they and they have the wrong skills and, and they're not capable they don't want to well that's not true those people they're describing want 
these opportunities. It's just not true. But an economist will say, yes, they're unemployed, but it's structural unemployment. Yeah, structural what does that mean? If it were structurally okay, then a, several, a few years ago, we had what's called a U6 unemployment rate of about 15%. It's now under 8%. Why did we just employ more than 7% of the, of the labor force in the last few years and not see these catastrophic inflationary circumstances. The reason is is because the economists were wrong. That's the reason. And the and the outcome is is because those people, those seven percent structurally unemployed people, they're now working and they're happy and they have aspirations they can meet. And and those are the Americans that I want to spend my time with. Swallowed their fear and moved along. You know, yeah. uh, we got to leave it there. We're backing up on um, on our friend Ari Fleischer, who's coming up. Uh, you know, Ronnie Jackson, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, the guy who didn't become head of Veterans Affairs, but was a White House physician, said of Donald Trump, I, I, I think he could live to be a 200. I think you could live to be 200. The reason I'm saying that is that I have a suggestion for your tombstone. Joel Farkas, uh, okay. Joel Farkas, quote, the economists are wrong. <laughs> it's a, well, at least a lot of them are wrong. What was the other one, Claude, that we had for uh, that we had for Joel? I love the defense of liberty for crying out loud. That's it. We have it. We got to let you go. Last thought. Go ahead. One, one last thought. We, we're talking about risks. The, the the best thing that you can get from an economist are risks are balanced. That's how they view things. Yeah. That's not what an American thinks about. Risks right. are balanced. No, that's not that's not America. All right, folks, that was Joel Farkas. He is a director of the American Strategy Group. Again, I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is Ari Fleischer. Ari is a former White House press secretary for President George W. Bush. He's also a Fox News contributor and a very smart guy. Ari, um, I want to talk, uh, focus on, on this whole kind of Stormy Daniels-Cohen situation because it looks as if, at least for the moment, the collusion issue is, you know, not the big danger, maybe not even the obstruction, though, you know, they're both still possible. But um, but the Stormy Daniels and the mess that's been made of it, I don't want to point fingers at people, but it seems to me there's a lot of unnecessary trouble being made here by the administration and its spokesman themselves. It doesn't have to be this hard, does it? That's a great way to put it. No, it doesn't have to be this hard. I think if you're accused of something that's not true, it shouldn't be very hard to just vociferously and aggressively point out it's wrong. But it seems like they keep doing it in a clumsy way instead of in a direct and effective way. If you've got the facts on your side, it shouldn't be this hard. If the facts are otherwise... If he had an affair with Stormy Daniels, and, you know, a lot of people, even a lot of people who support him, think he probably did, and others, why not just say so? Well, it's not the affair that's the issue. The, the question here is the, the payoff, how did it work, why was it done, why did Michael Cohen say he did it, Donald Trump says he didn't know about it. It's the cover-up of something that's not a crime is the problem, or I should say it's the conflicting stories about something that's not a crime is the problem. Look, I don't think there's a voter in America who thought in October 2016 that Donald Trump wasn't the kind of guy who would have an affair with a porn star or a Playboy bunny and or both. 
right. it wasn't relevant. Right, so, voters so. also thought Hillary Clinton was terribly, terribly dishonest. Uh, there were no angels on the ballot, and people weren't looking for angels in the 2016 election. So it's a cover-up. It's a mismanaged story. It's smoke okay. where there was never any fire, best I can tell. All right, so let's get rid of the cover-up. Let's uh, president say, all right, it's been a, it's been a mess. He gets out and says, or Giuliani says, or Sarah Sanders says, the president had an affair. He had a couple of affairs because that was... No, can't do that. They can't why? do that. Why? Melania. Because Donald Trump has said to his wife, he didn't do it. And We know that? Well, we have heard that. The president has said this is embarrassing for Melania. Um and he's denied it publicly. So, you know, Wait, I think let me, this let's is pause where there. you let's make pause. an allowance in public life for the fact that people will lie to protect their family. And I, th- I suspect that's what's happening here. Do I know? No. I, based on what's been said, it's my interpretation. All right. We're, I'm doing a lot of speculating here and asking you to follow me. And you go, you, you'll go where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. But uh, I, look, let's say, Let's say he did have a few affairs. It wouldn't shock me if he did. Do we really think, if he, even if he said to Melania, no, that she believes that? I mean, if he had several affairs, what doesn't the wife know? Often the wives do know. Uh, you know, it, it, if he had affairs, my guess is Melania knew. And he's still better off coming clean. First he comes clean with her, then he comes clean publicly. But again, because of what you were saying earlier, after the access Hollywood, people knew they were voting for, get rid of this mess and get rid of this mess by telling the truth. Tell it first to her. You know, I've just seen this before where the logical gets tripped up, and I've seen it in sports world where people start to weave their own web. And the reason is because once you start down the path of saying to your wife, I didn't do it, it's not true, then you later say, it is true. You undermine it so much, and then then she's going to wonder what else is not true that you've told me. And so what I've seen in the past is at least people then clam up because they don't want to have the huge personal burden of dealing with their wife on something that's fraught and... And, and with their right. children as well. You know, you have a young child bearing yeah, here. Sure, okay. And this can trip up many a person. All right. Apart from the personal level, and we don't know because, you know, no one knows the inside, the inside of a marriage. But publicly, right. quite, let's take Melania out of it. He'd be better off leveling, wouldn't he? Again, given what the American people figured. Well, sure. I mean, if, if you can make that <laughs> improbable step of separating I understand. No, I understand. his job and his family. <laughs> well, then, of course. Yeah. You know, that's why yeah. I've always scratched my head and said, why did they even need to pay hush money in October 2016? If she had come out in October 2016, no one would have cared. And isn't Donald Trump the one who proved to us that things that usually took down a candidate would not take him down? Not in the 2016 cycle. Certainly. And if you were public, uh, this is a debate I've been having with a few friends. Still some real big differences between his extracurricular activities and Bill Clinton's, right? Well, the biggest difference that we know of is lying under oath. That that's Bill Clinton was not impeached because he had an affair with an intern in the Oval Office. Bill Clinton was impeached because he lied under oath. And that's what Donald Trump has not been asked these questions under oath, presumably, that we know about. And the contact was consensual and from 10 years ago. Now, that's a little bit of a difference between him and what Bill Clinton did with Monica. Oh, I think so. Let me put forward these to you, too. Um, You've dealt with so many sensitive topics and 
very thoughtful and sensitive ways. A, he lied under oath. B, um, this was this was stuff he was doing while he was president. That's a difference, it seems to me. Yeah. Three, and I think this is separate from two, he was in the Oval Office when he was doing it. Not just he was president. He, you know, that office, that place you've been a thousand yeah. times, yeah. I've been 50 times. Um, that's a difference. And I think this, too, he has accused the president of the women who have stepped forward of not telling the truth. But the Clinton team tried to destroy their accusers, including Hillary as part of that team. Yeah, all, all of which is true. Okay. I mean, I, I just think people say, well, there's no difference between Clinton and, and, and Trump. There is a difference, assuming these things to be true. All right, let's go back to that, and then I want to move on. Go ahead. You want to say something? Well, I was going to say the other factor here is Bill Clinton kind of broke the seal, didn't he? Yeah, you know, sure he, he did. engaged in this the first time, at least that it was public, that a president did these things that we learned about in, in 1997, I guess, when it came public. The nation went through it, and in going through it, it changed the nation. It changed our mores. It changed our expectations. And the second time somebody goes through something not quite as like that, because as you point out, wasn't in the Oval Office, et cetera. It wasn't during the term of the presidency. We sort of harden ourselves to it, don't we? And society gets a little more acquiescent, a little more yielding about bad behavior. And that's and then you get to an election like 2016, where personal virtues were not a factor for either Bill, for either Donald Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Add up that 20-year trend in history that began with Clinton's behavior and the factors of 2016. I just think these personal things yeah. are irrelevant to most voters. They couldn't care less, and that's a different Republican Party than it was in the 90s. I remember green room conversation. I'm in a particular pickle here, not pickle. I'm in a particular predicament. So I wrote a book called The Death of Outrage. I don't know if you remember yeah. that, but it was number yeah. one. Carvel's defense of Clinton was number two. My 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 prosecution of the case, if you will, was number one. I just keep reminding Carvel of that, and I'm using you as, <laughs> as a way to do that. Anyway, so people say, well, there, what's the difference? Well, there is a difference. I think I just cited a few. But the other thing is, I remember being in green rooms while debating this with uh, on TV with you know Democrats, and they'd say before and after, and you've been in this situation, Ari, you know, what you're saying is absolutely true, Bill. <laughs> it's just we're not going to say so on TV, you know, the, right. the bad faith. And I remember saying, "This is going to, this is going to, this is messing up the pottage here." You know, this is uh, you're, you're 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 putting bad stuff in the punch bowl. This is going to coarsen American right. culture. And I remember a yep. psychologist, psychiatrist, actually, friend of mine, not my psychiatrist. I don't have one. Said, uh, "Boy, this excuse is going to be jumped on by every guy." who's cheating on his wife, the Clinton, the so-called Clinton defense, right? Hey, the president does it. This is this. Well, that's what I mean by Bill Clinton broke the seal. Yeah, broke the seal. Helped yeah, change America's mores. And, um, and, 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 but you can't underestimate how different the 2016 election was. It really okay. was not an election about virtue. It was an election yeah, about sure. an economy that really hadn't worked for most Americans for 10 years. It was a change election. That's what drove it. And yeah, neither sure. candidate was pretending to be a person of high virtue. So why are we disappointed when people do these things? We're, we're really not this time, are we? No, no, I guess, because people know what they were getting. You're right. One last question on this, then I want to something else, something more wholesome, I guess. Well, maybe not more wholesome. Mm-hmm. That won't yeah, be more right. wholesome. More, yeah. Uh, and that is, if it is true that he had an affair or affairs, we're going to find out, aren't we? Yeah, who cares? I don't think the no, issue no. But is first affairs. question, but we're gonna, but we're gonna find out, right? Oh, I don't know. Why, why would no, we maybe find not. out? I don't know through the records. I mean, Donald Trump would have to records. admit to it for us to find out. And, and really, and through the Cohen find, records, maybe. If Trump had an affair, 
Yeah. Now, I think you'll just know if there was a payoff on what Trump knew and when he knew it. The payoff could have been because he wanted to mis- make her go away. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Let's 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 move on. Right now, there seems to be a kind of uh, parallel struggle going on in um, uh, in Washington in regard to Trump. The the effort to as Judge Ellis said, and that was very interesting the other day, wasn't it? Uh, what are you guys doing? You're just going after Trump. You don't really care about Manafort and otherwise. The effort to get Trump, which I have, I, I, I see every day, you see every day. Uh, and then the effort uh, to kind of disclose the predations of uh, people at the FBI, um, accusations made against Trump, accusations made against McCabe and Comey. Who's got the upper hand in this? Who's winning these, this fight? I don't think we know yet. I, okay. I, I think the, the big win is the pending one, and that's what Will Mueller finally report. What we do know is... Wait, pause on that. Let me interrupt you. Uh, what Mueller will report, that is the big one. Obviously, he's the big kahuna. But won't the Horowitz report, the Inspector General from Justice, isn't that a big deal, too? No question. Okay. And, and that's more a look back. I think that's going to be a real report about whether or not the Hillary Clinton investigation was a proper one. Okay. And that will be fascinating for us to pay attention to. But I think that's separate and apart from Mueller and the possibility of Donald Trump being in trouble with Mueller. One's a cleanup. The other is the, the, the present and the future. But we do know that also just happened, you referenced it, is for the first time, the, and really what's been an unbroken series of people basically thinking that this is just a prosecution that's going forward, is a judge tapped the brakes and did so uh-huh. with a lot of important language and, and holding the Justice Department to account and raising questions. The other thing that I think is fascinating, and Andrew McCarthy has been writing about this in National Review, yes. Yes. is the indictment of the 13 Russians was really a PR stunt because nobody ever expected the indictments to go forward or a trial to happen. Um, Mueller certainly wasn't expecting to prosecute any Russians because the Russians won't let those people go. But he also indicted three businesses, and one of the businesses is now fighting back. They've actually showed up in court, and now they want discovery. They want what Mueller has. Has. And Mueller, it appears, has been surprised by that move and isn't prepared to turn over what he has, which is, of course, what you have to do when you have a prosecution go forward. So that's another huge curveball out there. Keep your eye on what's happened now as a result of one of those 13 defendants fighting for their rights. Yeah. Let me go back to what you said. I may have a disagreement with you on two things. One, Judge Ellis, I agree with you. The language was very stern, but it may not affect his ultimate ruling. He may just been saying, Correct. you know, you guys are, you know, you're, you're acting like jerks here. You're, you're really, you're, you're not being honest with me. Nevertheless, you know, you could proceed with a matter for trial. That's what most experts seem to believe, yeah. but it may result in more public knowledge of what the Rosenstein memo called for, what the scope of the investigation is, and why it's so heavily redacted. Uh, you know, a little more transparency, and, and I think that's, that's easy. one of the problems here is if there's not so little transparency, it's hard to get the public to accept what's going on, other than the partisan camps. People like myself, who tend to be a little more in the middle about this, actually are curious to see what the facts are here, and what the reasons yeah, sure, are here, sure. and more disclosure, more transparency is more helpful. Right, and then the second one, you said when I asked you about the difference between the Mueller inquiry and the inquiry on, on the FBI by Congress and uh, yeah, mainly by Congress, is they're separate. But if you because the the, the Horowitz, the Inspector General, um, that that'll turn out to be about the investigation of Hillary, and that's separate from the Mueller report. But if we find out they really did play patty cake with Hillary. 
That'll affect an awful lot of people's attitudes about Trump. Someone said the other day, I'm sure you saw this, hey, uh, it was Giuliani, I think he might have hit hit some gold at some point in his, in his dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when, uh, when he said, oh, well, we want the Hillary treatment, you know? We want lawyers in there, we don't want any recording, and we want the decision of, uh, you know, not culpable made before the interview's over. Um, if it turns out that she was given patty cake, and not, uh, you know, and, and given a pass, which it looks like may very well happened, that'll affect people's judgment of whatever Mueller comes down with, won't it? No, no question it will. And the opposite's true, too. If Horowitz comes out and says, well, there was this problem or that problem, but by and large, it was a legitimate conclusion and investigation, uh, you can't rule that out. But if it is what you said, Bill, then of course common sense will say it's wrong to play softball with a Democrat and hardball with a Republican, even if the Republican is Donald Trump. And remember, at the end of the day, if there's a criminal matter about Donald Trump, it's settled through the impeachment clause of the Constitution, not through the prosecution of the Justice Department. And that's why it is, in essence, a political matter in the good meaning of the word political, meaning it should be settled by the people's elected representatives or by the people themselves. So and if there's a sense that it's not fair play, that will influence how Congress operates. All right. And how horrible is impeachment without conviction? Uh, that is, well, think, you can see where I'm going. If the, if the Democrats win the House and this thing is still going on, it looks like it's going to go another year. Someone says to the president, you know, tell him to impeach. Just let him impeach. You're not going to get convicted. Even if the Democrats win the Senate, they're not going to get 66. History says it'll backfire on the party that does it. Yeah. That's what happened in 1998. House Republicans insisted on impeaching President Clinton. There was a school of thought at the time to just have a vote of the House to censure Bill Clinton. Leadership of the House rejected it. And it would have been a lot wiser just to have censured him. Republicans lost congressional seats that year. In a year, they should have picked up a lot of seats. And it damaged the image of the Republican Party because it showed that you're only interested in prosecution and we didn't have ideas. And that's the risk that the Democrats will have if they go down that road. And so I I think there's a lot of merit to what you just said, Bill. If they go down the impeachment road, and certainly unless there's a new fact, there won't be any conviction in the Senate. Hard to see how it benefits the Democrats. Amazing, though. Think of where we are then. The I word, the impeachment. I I could actually plausibly imagine some advisor to the president saying, go ahead and let him impeach. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. What do you mean, no big deal? Impeachment of a president is no big deal? Well, it actually probably will help you, Mr. President. I mean, one could make that argument with a straight face, as you just did. The worst trend in modern politics is to delegitimize your legitimate opposition. Donald Trump did it to Barack Obama when he insisted that Barack Obama was born in Kenya and didn't have a birth certificate. And I remember going on the air back then and criticizing Donald Trump, private citizen Trump, for doing that. I didn't like Obama, but I won't make somebody illegitimate just because I don't like them. And now the Democrats are trying to do it to Donald Trump. And it's the worst thing you can do in politics. Beat your opponent. Defeat him on ideas. Defeat him through policy. Defeat him because he's a bad candidate. But stop making people illegitimate or criminals just because you're running against them one follow-up you could see that advice being given to the president i could too could you see that you might think that advice in some circumstances could be the right advice to let the house impeach him yeah yeah. well you can't stop it anyway well but just say one of those yeah there's nothing donald trump can or cannot do to influence it other than be a good enough politician and a popular enough president that Democrat leaders say to Nancy Pelosi, if she becomes the speaker, don't do this. 
learn from history and censure him. Do something intermediate. But the problem you get is just what we had in 98 in the House. The passions of the partisans take over, and it's hard to resist those. That's what the base demands. And the Democrats, of course, will be going into a presidential primary, and presidential candidates will typically call for the worst, most draconian things to appeal to the liberal left. And that probably means impeachment. Yeah, I keep having this thought every time I see the Stormy Daniels lawyer on who says he won't last his term. I don't, other than him quitting, I don't see any scenario which which he's forced out. I don't see impeachment or conviction on any of these things. We've got to wait for Mueller. There's a fact out there that we don't know. Does Mueller have the goods or not? I I don't think he does. There's no reason to think there's any evidence of collusion or obstruction or anything else. But Mueller holds that card, and you and I don't. All right, but if he has that card, then then, then, um, by virtue of the argument, 66 senators might might agree. Got to see what he's got. It's got to be a hell of a card, though, right? Right, right. Okay, one last thing, and now you'll know why I asked you, Han. You do communications work for the bowl championship committee, correct? Uh, that's correct. Selection used to be the BCS. Now it's called the CFP, the College Football Playoff. Can you get me on it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, just blatant. I'm not going to do Washington monkey oh, business. Right. I just, you know, I just uh, never mind. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Your name in the index. Oh, what's um, that? <laughs> that's the equivalent of looking your name up in the index of a book. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly That's exactly right. We do have six new members coming on this fall. I'm sorry to say you're not one of them. Not yet. I know. You're all sports. I know I, you love all sports, but I am dying here. I don't know what to do in May and June and July. I really don't until college. Watch football. the Yankees, Red Sox. Yeah, you're a good man. You're a good man. You're a broad man, latitudinarian, and I am, <laughs> I am just narrow casting. This, this world is a lot of fun. Okay. Hey, Ari, you're a lot of fun and smart as hell. Thank you very, very much. It's great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. All right. That was Ari Fleischer. Ari is a former White House press secretary for President George W. Bush, also a Fox News contributor, and as you just heard, smart guy, and he runs Ari Fleischer Communications. That's all that we have time for today, folks. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. We'll be right back.